it's, it's kind of like asking a, a candy maker to show you how to eat the candy that he's making. That's kind of how I feel this morning. It's like, talk to us about Romans 1 through 8. Like, um, okay. <laughs> you, you, you okay with me doing this? You know, you, this, is, this is right. This is good. And um, yeah, that's exactly what we're going to do. Over a year ago, and we'll talk about this in a minute, over a year ago we started into the book of Romans and we compared working through the book of Romans expositionally like climbing Mount Everest because this is, according to so many people, the highest peak of Scripture, the top of the top, the best of the best. It is the very purest gospel presentation in the Bible. It's kind of like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians all together in one letter. And uh, you want to talk New Testament theology, you want to talk about gospel presentation, we look at the book of Romans. So I'm just kind of giddy. I, I can't believe that we've made it this far. I really can't. And I can't believe the truths and the impact that this book over this last year and couple months has made in my life personally and the fruit that it's bearing in my life and I'm so so thankful for it and part of my problem is how do you take on this task to literally walk through eight chapters of not just a book but this book in one message and uh, we've been we've been looking at the trees really up close and we're going to pull out today and we're going to take a glance at the forest and it, it can be overwhelming, but how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, right? So where are we going to start? We're going to start where Paul starts. Chapter 1, verse 1. Before I read it, let me pray. God, you have done great things. You are God in heaven, and here we are on earth. Amen. And God, I pray that this morning that we would place our hands over our mouths so that we might hear you speak clearly. God, I am bursting with joy and expectation. I'm bursting with joy over what you have done through this book study so far, and I'm bursting with expectation over what you want to do, not just today, but through the rest of it. I thank you for your word. God, we, along with you, elevate your word along with your name, into the highest heights of heaven and recognize that what you are doing through your word is conforming us to the image of your Son. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would have your way. Speak and be heard for those who know you and for those who sit here today who may not know you, God. Speak and be heard. Holy Spirit, convict sinners and show them their need for a Savior. And God, if they can't see that Savior in this book, I don't know that it can be done, but that's your work, and we entrust it to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes, sir. No, but Mr. Allen is with us. I'll have him come up at the end. So, <laughs> the benevolent landlord is here. So, yeah. Um, yep, I, I saw him slip in there, and we'll slip him in at the end of the message. So, Romans 1, chapter 1, verse 1. We'll start where Paul, where Paul starts, chapter 1, verse 1. And again, you're going you're gonna to get 
fire-hosed with the Bible this morning. You're going to get it from head to toe. You're going to get more Bible than... You're going to get a lot of Bible this morning. You ever get stuck in an analogy? It happens. So, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, and this is the section of the message where I will have you stand for the reading of the Scripture, and it's for one big verse. Are you ready? So would you stand with us? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. You can be seated. You're like, why would you have me stand for that? Because it's awesome. That's why. It's awesome. So here, as we start our journey through these eight chapters, Paul starts the letter by introducing himself as what? First... And foremost, a servant, a slave. And he also says he was called to be an apostle. Now we've talked in our Wednesday nights with the adults and we've talked through the Truth Project stuff that when the apostle speaks, it is as if the man who sent him was speaking himself. So these are the very words of God. This is not some rambunctious Jewish rabbi who just decided, I'm going to write a letter to these folks at Rome. This is the Holy Spirit of God moving in a person, through a person, to record words to reveal Himself. And how does He reveal Himself? He reveals Himself through His servants as His servants share His Word. So Paul is first and most a servant. And as a servant, he is laying his life down for the people that he is serving. That's what he's called to do. That's what he's doing here. But the question I want to ask up front is, who is Paul serving here? And it's an important question because it tells us why he is writing what he's writing. Now to find that answer, we actually have to skip to near the end of the book. If you've got your Bibles, Romans 15. I'm going to read verses 22 through 25. He says to the Romans, the church in Rome, in Romans 15, 22 through 25, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. Hmm. Now, to answer the question, why Paul is writing what he's writing... If you look at verse 24, he says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to and to be helped on my journey there by you. So why is Paul writing this letter? To put it quite simply, this is a missionary letter. Miss Lynette shared with us this morning that she's got a mission that she's going So she's sharing with us what, what's happening there, what's going on. And exactly, that's exactly what Paul is doing here to the Romans. He's got a work that he needs to do. He needs to raise some funds. He needs some support. So he's writing this letter to the Roman Christians. This is a missionary letter. Paul is raising money to make a trip to Spain. And how is he hoping to convince the Romans that they should help him on his way to Spain when he comes? He's giving them the best that he has. He's giving them the gospel. 
which is exactly what he does starting here in chapter 1. Look at verses 14 through 17 of chapter 1. Paul says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. From these verses, we see that Paul sees himself as under obligation to share the gospel to Jews and Greeks. We see that he was eager to share the gospel with his readers in Rome. We see that he's not ashamed of the gospel. We see that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes and that in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now that in and of itself is a lot. And again, he's not even into the meat of his... That's just his greeting. He's just kind of explaining why he's doing what he's doing. But it does make the gospel the thing. He's saying clearly, I'm under compulsion to share the gospel. I believe the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. In the gospel is the righteousness of God that's revealed from faith for faith. So all of this makes this letter, this whole letter, all 16 chapters of it about the gospel. It makes Paul's life gospel. And what we find that follows in this book is probably the most thorough treatment of the gospel in the entire Bible. So let me explain what we're going to do this morning. We're going to run at a really good clip through chapters 1 through 7 to see this gospel unfolded. And then we'll settle into chapter 8 and review the glorious truths contained in that chapter for those who have been saved by this glorious gospel. And here's the outline that we've been using for you guys that haven't been around. Um, I actually found this in a uh, Moody commentary, I believe. So this is completely plagiarized. So I didn't make this up. I don't want you to think that I did. Um, The book of Romans is laid out thusly. Uh, The theme of the book of Romans is how to be right with God. That's the overall arching theme. Chapter 1-1 through 3-20, we see sin the need for being right with God. Chapter 3, 21 through 4, 25, we see justification by faith, the means for being right with God. Point 3 is blessings, the results of being right with God. 5, 1 through 8, 39. Point 4 is really, real interesting. And guys, be praying. Chapter 9's coming. Chapter 9's like a crouching tiger is what John Piper says. Point 4 is vindication, the Jewish people and the sovereignty of God and how that applies to the gospel. Point five is application, the implications of being right with God. And then point six is Paul's concluding mandates. He's talking to individuals and to the church in general. So that's the the outline that we've been following. So keep that, and we'll see that again throughout the message. But that's where we're headed. So starting in chapter 1, verse 18, and running through chapter 3, verse 20, we see that we've called point one, sin, the need for being right with God. In this section... We see the starting point of the good news is really some bad news. And that bad news is that the wrath of God is being displayed now against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We see that God has shown Himself to all through the things that have been made so that everyone is without excuse. And it's clear that the human race chose not to honor God but rather worship created things instead of their Creator. And the result is that God gave them over 
in an act of His current wrath, He gave them over to debased minds, to the lusts of their corrupt sinful hearts. And who is all this talking about? Chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, are there any loopholes that you see in that at all? Not nary aerial one. Not nary aerial one. Zip, zero, zilch, nada. Who is locked up under sin? All. Everybody. All. Everybody. And you see that word all a lot in the book of Romans, don't you? We've seen it quite a few times through these eight chapters. So who's bound up under this judgment of sin? Who is guilty before God? And the answer is everyone. All of us. The natural, normal human condition is to be born in sin, helpless and hopeless to save ourselves. That's depravity. That's where we all have to start if we are to know the good news of the gospel. The awareness and confession of being a sinner and the awareness of our need for a Savior has to preclude everything that follows this. That's where Paul starts his gospel explanation, and it's where we should start ours as well. So we're all sinners. That's chapter 1 through chapter 3.20. So sin, the need for being right with God, right? Now what? We see 3.21 through 4.25, justification by faith, the means for being right with God. And how can we be made right with God? And the only way that we can be made right with God is justification by faith. Now that's Christianese, that's that's churchese. Some of you are going, I don't know what that means. So what does it mean? Now let's take a jog through this passage here. Starting in 3.21. I'm going to read 3.21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now that's again <laughs> concentrated awesomeness there. That, that is so much. It's a whole lot of truth packed into those six verses. But the main thrust, and listen, is that God saves us apart from the law. Which means that God saves us apart from us keeping a list of rules. Apart from us doing and don'ting, to put it in Appalachianese. God justifies. God makes us right with Him, according to verse 24. Listen, by His grace as a gift. And then verse 25 says that we receive that gift by faith. And our faith is what Jesus did was sufficient to pay the penalty due to God for our sins. Who's a sinner? 
Everybody. Our faith is in who Jesus is, what Jesus did as God in the flesh to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, and to go to the cross and take the punishment for our sins upon His body. The just being punished for the guilty. And He died, He was buried, and then was resurrected on the third day after His death, showing Himself as alive to over 500 people over a period of 40 days, and then He ascended from earth to heaven in a physical body in the sight of His apostles, who then received the promise that this same Jesus would return to earth in the same way that He was taken from it. That happened. That was history. And that's the faith that we have. That's what we place our faith in is the person of Christ and the finished work of Christ. Our faith is in Jesus and His work. And in God's perfect plan, that faith in Jesus and in His work saves us. So how are we saved? By grace, through faith, in the person and work of Jesus. And my question is, why do it this way? Verse 26 says, the purpose that it, that it is this way is that so that He, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And I want us to get one thing clear and straight here. God is the one who justifies. And it is for God's glory. Do you get rewards from it? Yes, you do, absolutely. Do you get good from it? Yes, you do, absolutely. Should you enjoy it and rejoice in the fact that He does good things for you? Yes, you should, absolutely. But the end game in all of this is that by Him and for Him, He gets glory. You were saved not just for yourself. You were saved primarily for the glory of God. So from here, Paul goes into chapter 4. And he uses chapter 4 to show us how this looked in a guy named Abraham's life. And Abraham was the patriarch of the Jewish nation. And in chapter 4, we see that even Abraham was not saved by what he did, but he was saved when he believed that what God said God was going to do. Abraham believed God and it says that belief is what led him to being counted righteous, being right with God. Belief in God, who God is, and what God has done. This is what justified Abraham, and it's what justifies us today. And why did God do it this way? So that the promise would be for all, not just for the circumcised, not just for those who had received the law of God. Look at chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. That's talking about Abraham. But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So listen, this thing we call Christianity, this path to righteousness by grace through faith is not a tribal religion. It's not reserved for a select few who happen to be born in the right family. The promise to Abraham was given so that all the nations might be blessed through him. All the nations might be blessed through him. Christianity doesn't belong to the Jewish people. 
Christianity does not belong to the American people. Christianity does not belong to a privileged few. It is a call to be a blessing to all nations, every tribe, every tongue, to the ends of the earth until the end of time. So this is not for those lucky Jews who happen to catch a break and be born in a system where the law was present. And God made it that way so that everybody, all the nations, might have availability to this blessing by grace through faith. And since it's by grace through faith in the work of Jesus, it is available to all. And that's the point. And that brings us to our third point. See what a good clip we're running at? We're going to slow down in Romans 8, y'all. <laughs> we've seen sin. We've seen justification by faith. And that led us to point three, which is blessings. The results of being right with God. And great googly moogly. The things we have seen in these chapters. Chapter 5, verse 1 through chapter 8, 39. Bury me with those, please. Put them in my hand, in my casket. Because I'm telling you, it is breathtaking. It is overwhelming. Blessings. The results of being right with God. What a whopping four chapters this has been. I look back... And we started it on chapter 5, verse 1, December 20th, 2015. It was the Sunday before Christmas last year that we started it on chapter 5. So for 10 months now, for 10 months now, we have had our eyes open to the beauty and the majesty of who God is for us as believers. For 10 months now, we've been looking at the manifold blessings of being declared righteous by our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And what an amazingly powerful and beautiful crop of blessings it is. Right from the get-go. Listen to Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) Peace with God. If we had no other blessings that resulted from our justification, peace with God would be sufficient. Because let me tell you something. Peace with God, whom we had been at war with previously in the hostility of our sinful flesh. You say, well, I don't feel like I was at war with God. Well, you were. And He was at war with you. Because you were a rebel to His will. You were born cursing God. You were born with your hair on fire running toward hell. And see what you get for that? That's depravity. We've seen that everybody was born under sin. And we were hostile to God. So I don't feel hostile to God. The Scriptures bind us all up under sin. It says that we're held captive by the enemy to do His will. And if we are held captive to the enemy of God to do His will, the enemy's will is to be at odds, at war with God. So as an unbeliever, you are at enmity with God. And to think about having peace with God because of what He's done, that is a pretty big blessing. 
Peace with God, which is what our very souls cry out for in futility in everything apart from God. And then we went through chapter 5 and saw that the justified... And I'm just going to run through these blessings. If you've got your Bible there, look at chapter 5. I'm not going to read it all. But you can just see these things. We saw that the justified have grace. We saw that the justified have joy and sufferings. That they have endurance. That they have character. That they have hope. That they have God's love poured into their hearts. That they have the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. They have the beauty of the truth that God gave Christ to die for us. The just for the unjust. That we're saved from the wrath of God that we have reconciliation, and that the very life of Christ given not just for us, but to us. That's a pretty good chapter, y'all. And then we saw the glory and beauty of imputation. Now, I don't mean cutting off your limb. That's amputation. This is not the doctrine of losing your limbs. Imputation in chapter 5, when we saw that all were imputed or given the sin of Adam. So that when Adam, the historical, very real person named Adam, when he sinned, we all sinned in him. It's what theologians call the federal head. Adam was the federal head of the human race. Now, why? Why would God set it up so that we were imputed or given the sin of Adam? The good news is is so that we could receive the gift of righteousness of Christ through the imputation of His righteousness to us. 5, 18-19 Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. We can be made righteous by Jesus' act of obedience because we were made unrighteous by Adam's act of disobedience. But you may be crying foul here. You may be saying, that's not fair. And you are absolutely right. It is not fair that God would give you Jesus' perfect righteousness. That ain't fair, y'all. It's not fair, it's grace. And it's grace so that He would get the glory. And then we moved into chapter 6, powerful section in chapter 6, where we saw that grace is not an excuse to sin. Rather, we see that we actually died to sin when we were justified because we died to sin when we were joined to Christ and shared in His death. That passage says we were baptized into Christ. And that literally means we were immersed into Jesus and His life. And in that union, we share in His death and we will share in His resurrection. We have gone from being a slave to sin to being a slave to righteousness. And then chapter 6 ends with the familiar verse, 623, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord which brought us to chapter 7, where we really slowed down. We really focused on chapter 7. And my statement over and over as we went through chapter 7 was, if you don't get chapter 7, you won't get chapter 8. And what we saw in chapter 7 was, we died to the law so that we could be joined to Christ. 
We were bound by covenant to the law, whether we knew it or not. And the only way to break a covenant is how? Death. That's the only way a covenant can be broken. And when we died with Christ, we died to the law, and our covenant there was made void. And then we were joined in union with Christ. We were wed to another. And the reason that had to happen was so that we could move from living according to the law in our flesh to living according to the power of the Spirit and bear fruit for what? For God's glory. Not that the law was the problem. He says this in chapter 7, and here we go. Sin was the problem. Sin deceiving us and making us obey its desires. So when we were born again, all that sin went away, right? Chuckle, chuckle. When you were born again, you don't have a desire to sin anymore, right? Because God takes that away from us. And it's a glorious deliverance and we never mess up again. Right? Absolutely not. While we surely do get a new nature and we surely do die to sin and we surely do die to the law, we surely don't get a seniotomy at our conversion. Seniotomy. That's where they cut the sin out of you. Sometimes I need a backyotomy, I think. Give me a new back. And this really bothered me. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it, it shook my feathers. Because I'm thinking, why wouldn't God take this sin away? And chapter 7 tells us why. Verses 14 through 25, and you can just look at it in your Bibles, I don't have it up here. 14 through 25 talk about sin being present, sin dwelling in our flesh. And we made it clear that we were teaching from an understanding that the Holy Spirit was saying through Paul that this is a believer's experience. This wasn't Paul pre-conversion, it was Paul post-conversion. Wrestling with sin in his flesh. So the believer has sin dwelling in his flesh. The believer is the one doing the thing he doesn't want to do. The believer is the one who isn't doing the thing that he wants to do. The believer is a walking civil war being torn between the law of God in his mind and the law of sin in his flesh. Which makes verses 21 through 25 so important. Now I do have those up here. The end of chapter 7. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord! Exclamation point. Uninspired exclamation point, but I think right exclamation point. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So according to this, evil lies close at hand. War is being waged against the law of his mind. He's a captive like a POW to the law of sin. And he calls out for deliverance as a believer from this body of death. And who delivers him? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then this. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. High five! But with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Believer. Apostle. 
inspired writer of Scripture. Serving the law of sin with his flesh. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty discouraging way to end a chapter after saying that Jesus would deliver him from this body of death. So thanks be to God that I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Really? That's the best you got, Paul? And the answer is nope. No, it's not the best he's got. Here comes the big guns. And let's lead into Romans 8 by reading the end of Romans 7. Okay, I'm going to read 7.21 through 8.1. I hate that chapter division. Oh, it's like an arrow through the heart. And it's like a wall of partition that we can't separate. So, so don't, don't look at your Bibles, okay? Close your eyes. Focus. Listen. Seriously, close your eyes and listen to what I'm about to read. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. <laughs> mm. Now, did you hear what I just read? Do you get it? With my flesh, I serve the law of sin. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you hear it? Do you get it? With my flesh, I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I serve the law of sin... There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My heart's pounding. Do you really get that, Christian? Do you hear it? Do you get it? Now we've already seen that it's not okay to go on sinning back in chapter 6. That was clear. But we see here that sin is still living in my flesh. And I serve the law of sin with my flesh. And in the midst of that reality, I am in Christ and there is no condemnation for me. I don't know about you, but that sounds like really good news to me. For the believer, the one who is in Christ, there is now no condemnation even in the midst of our serving the law of sin with our flesh. Now, as long as now is called now, as long as now is now, there's no condemnation. Mm. And the rest of Romans 8 unfolds before us in the light of this staggering truth. All that we've seen before in chapters 1 through 7 are drawn into this marvelous light and we see two things clearly powerfully in chapter 8. Two things that chapter 8 is all about. One, the one who has been justified by grace through faith in Jesus' work is powerfully secure in their salvation. That's the first thing we see in chapter 8. The second thing we see is that the Holy Spirit of God Himself is present in the believer's life to empower him, to keep him, 
and to assure him. Let's run through it as fast but as thorough as we can. It starts with no condemnation for those in Christ. And again, look at your Bibles again. Look at Romans 8 and just kind of scan your eyes as I go through this list. Then we see that the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And why? How? For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of human flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might what? Be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, in the power of the flesh, but in the power of and according to the Spirit. Those in the flesh cannot please God, but we are not in the flesh. Now I'm just pulling this straight from the Scripture. But we are not in the flesh because when we were justified, God's Spirit came to dwell in us. Verse 9 makes it clear that if someone doesn't have the Spirit of God living in them, they are not God's child. But verse 10 says, If Christ is in us through the Spirit being in us, even though our bodies are dead because of sin, the Holy Spirit is life because He is righteous. And verse 11 says that if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. How do we overcome the sin in our dead flesh? By resurrection power provided by the same One who raised Jesus' dead body from the grave. And that Spirit gives us the power to put to death the deeds of the body. And that's what God's Spirit in us leads us to do. And if we are led by God's Spirit, we are sons of God. And He's really rolling now. I mean, He's going. (laughs) We aren't slaves anymore. We've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And that Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are His children, we are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Wow, wow, and wow. And then this in verse 17. Listen. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And what we have here in verse 17 sets the stage for the rest of the chapter. And it's about suffering. It's easy to read Romans 8 and go, Yes, God, that's awesome. Yes, God, blessing, blessings coming in, blessings going out, blessings, blessings, blessings. I'm one with Christ. I've got the spirit of adoption. And then he throws the word suffering in there. And we go, Oh, wait, whoa, 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 wait just a second. Is there a translation where maybe it doesn't say that? Because I'd, I'd like that translation. I'd like to read, that'd be my devotional reading in the morning, if that'd be okay. But no. No cuts, no butts, no coconuts. Thank you. There's no way around it. The Christian life is built for suffering. Verse 17 says plainly that in order to be glorified with Christ, we must and we will suffer with Him. But verse 18 assures us that the sufferings we are experiencing in the here and now are not worth comparing with the glory that we will ultimately have in heaven. And all of creation, all of creation waits for us to be who we were created to be. All of creation was adversely affected by our sin 
And when we finally reach our ultimate destination, when we are seen in our full glory, creation will also be set free from its bondage to sin and the effects of sin. And creation groans waiting for that day. But not just creation. We also groan. We have the Spirit in us, but we're waiting for the day when our bodies are finally fully redeemed and sin and its effects are gone from us. We have been adopted and we have the spirit of adoption like we saw earlier, but on that day we will see it with our own eyes. It will become our present reality. But until then, it is our great hope. Verse 24 says, "...in this hope we were saved." And we are called to wait for this hope with patience. Christian, we are called to suffer. And we are empowered to suffer well. But how can we? Verse 26 brings God's Spirit back into the fray and says that He helps us as we are weak as we are suffering. When we don't even know what or how to pray, God's Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God. And then verse 28. (laughs) Oh, verse 28. Verse 28 affirms that even our suffering, even our sin, even our inability is being used for what? And we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. All things. All things. All things are being caused by God to synergistically work together for our You confident yet? And you're like, well, I don't don't know if I am or not. Well, then let's keep reading. We see in verses 29 and 30... Let me read that. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So these verses, we see the working of God began in eternity past when He set His love on us in foreknowledge, intimate, personal, loving foreknowledge of His doing. And when He set His foreknowledge on us, when He set His love on us and foreknew us, He also predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And when He predestined us, He called us. And when He called us, He also justified us. And when He justified us, He also glorified us from eternity past. Confident yet? Well, let's keep reading. With a flourish, with a shout of triumph and praise and confidence, Paul concludes this chapter and this section with verses 31 through 39. And yes, we are going to read this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. <laughs> let, me, let me just try to put that in a capsule. You ready? No one can be against us because God is for us. We are given all things in and with Christ. No one can bring a charge against us because God justifies us. No one can condemn us because Jesus died, was raised, and is at the right hand of God interceding for us. We can't be separated from the love of Christ by tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. And though we live to be killed as sheep, to be slaughtered, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And we can be sure... We can be sure, we can be sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you confident yet? Are you assured that God Himself has moved and will move heaven and earth to find you, to save you, and keep you from eternity past into eternity future? Are you confident that He who saved you before the foundation of the world will preserve you through, although every demon in hell sets their flaming missiles against you? Are you sure yet that the love of God shown at the beginning of chapter 8 as placing us in Christ and away from condemnation is the same love that at the end of the chapter says we will never be separated from? Do you see that, Christian? Then live like it. It's one thing to know it. It's one thing to read it and say, man, that'd be great. <laughs> but it's probably for somebody else because look what I'm going through. Know it. Believe it. Reckon it into your account. And what, what's left? Do it. Know, believe, reckon, do. Here's the thing, Christian. It's in your account. God deposited it there. And we're walking around like we're afraid of bouncing a check. Oh, I don't know about this. My boss is pretty mad at me. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. God must be upset with me. <laughs> Christian, you who were conceived in sin from your mother's womb, 
were given the gracious gift of justification by a holy God when you placed your faith in the perfect atoning work of Jesus Christ. You were baptized into Christ. You were immersed into Him. You were placed in union with Him. And now you are being kept by Him by the power of the Holy Spirit in you. And you are being empowered by Him to image forth His glory as you suffer, as you wait, and as you overwhelmingly conquer in your battle with the sin that resides in your flesh. And He will keep you and you will never be separated from His love for you. When you fail, when you fall, when you love sin more than Him, He loves you with an everlasting love and His kindness leads you to repentance. And listen, He will not fail. He will not loosen His grip. He will not falter in His work to conform you to the image of His Son. And that's the gospel. And that's what we've been immersed in for over 14 months now. And it tickles me to death. I feel like Romans 8... We talked about Sir Edmund Hillary back in our overview of Romans, the first message in Romans, which was an overview of the whole book. The whole book. That was fun too. We talked about Sir Edmund Hillary being the first person to get to the top of Mount Everest. What happened was when they got up there, they didn't just say, okay, keep going. They stopped and they took some pictures and they planted a flag and they looked around from 30,000 feet up in the air. And I feel like that's what we've been doing in Romans 8. It's like we're just going, wow. No condemnation. No separation. Take a picture. It'll last longer. (laughs) Take a picture of me here, right here with this truth that nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I want to carry that picture right next to my heart for the rest of my life. I want to walk in that truth. I want to walk in the truth that Jesus Christ loved me enough to die for me. That Jesus Christ loved me enough to give His life not just for me but to me. And that nothing, nothing can separate me from that love. Take a picture. Breathe it in. Breathe in this rarefied thin air. And I feel like the rest of the book, starting in chapter 9, we're starting down the mountain. People die going down the mountain too. It's precarious. And you know what's at the bottom of the mountain? Life. Every day, get your feet dirty in the mud, life. And that's what the rest of this book's about. So as we start down the mountain, as we begin our descent back down into this everyday life, we are clear from Romans 1 through 8 that God's plan is for our good. God's ability is more than adequate, even in the midst of our sinning, suffering, and striving. And we can trust Him... Listen to me. 
even when we don't understand Him and His ways perfectly. You think you've got God figured out in a box? Guys, Romans 9 is coming. And it ain't playing no games. And it's good news. We're going to struggle through it. We're going to wrestle through it. You're going to get mad at me. I love you. I'm not going to change the Bible. I'm going to let it change me. Amen. Remember my buddy who hit the rock wall and got his teeth knocked out? We're going to come up against a really big, immovable God in Romans 9 through 11. You ain't going to move him. Be ready for that. We can trust him even when we don't understand him in his ways perfectly. And you're going to need to know that. You're going to need to hold on to that immediately as we move into chapters 9 through 11. It's not an insignificant portion of Scripture that's just a parenthesis. You're going to need the assurance that this is pertinent to our everyday lives when we move into chapters 12 to 15. Listen to me. Our confidence, our hope is in Him and His perfect plan. If at any point you find yourself being pulled away from that confidence in Him, remember the gospel. Remember chapters 1 to 8 of Romans and refresh yourself in the infallible proof of and in the ineffability of God whose plan and power are perfect. And they are perfect toward us, in us, and through us. That's what the gospel is all about. And it has been a glorious trip up the mountain. And it's going to be a glorious trip down it too. Let's pray. God, you are faithful. You are able to do exceeding abundantly above anything that we could think or imagine. So we put our faith, our hope, our trust in you, and we rejoice here at the top of the mountain in the beauty of your gospel. We rejoice in who you are and what you've done. We rejoice in who you are and what you're going to do. We rejoice in your word. We rejoice in your people. We rejoice in your Holy Spirit who lives in us. Thank you for the truths that we've seen. Now, God, help us to go out and live like we believe them, empowered by your Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.